I'm a pastor of Missional Living here, and it is my privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We will be studying in Revelations chapter 17 and 18. The title of this message is The Danger of Worldly Desires. The Danger of Worldly Desires. I see some of you already begin to turn in your Bibles there. Do me a favor and actually turn to 1 John chapter 2. For introductionary purposes, we'll start in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And I know that many of us, we have heavy hearts this morning as we come to worship, as we think about what's going on in Ukraine. And so as with heavy hearts, it may even be hard to, to focus this morning and to receive God's word for us today. And so I not only want to pray for the message and for our hearts, but I do want to pray for, for what's going on in Ukraine as well. So pray with me, please. Father, you are ruling and reigning. Not only is salvation from the Lord, but everything in the earth is the Lord's. You are king. You are the sovereign ruler. And so we beseech you, O oh God, to work in such a way where you will bring this war to an end. God, we pray for peace among the nations, and especially in Ukraine right now. Our hearts break as we think about the families that have been divided and, and lost and lives that have been lost. But God, we pray that you would bring that to an end and let your church rise up. Let your church rise up and be the church there in the midst of that brokenness. And help us this morning, Father, I pray, to receive your word. Even in the midst of all that's going around us, give us an opportunity to just focus and to receive your word and through your word and because of your spirit, take a step closer to you. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, once said, I believe the re one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence on the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Convicting, right? For To hear him make that observation in his day and age. But what about ours? Spurgeon will go on to say this. Put your finger on any prosperous page in church history and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. He said there was, a, there was a distinction between the church and the world, and we could see it in the prosperous ages of the church. And so if we were to ask that question in our day and age, is there a clear line in the sand between the church and the world? Is there a clear line between where the church begins and the world ends? Study after study shows that the lifestyles of professing Christians actually looks just like the world. Some statistics would say that our spinning patterns are very similar to the spinning patterns of the world. We're buying some of the things that the world buys. What about divorce? Some statistics say that there are more professing Christians 
getting divorced than non-Christians? What about sexual immorality? Some statistics say that the percentage of men professing to be Christian watch pornography just as non-Christians. Virtually the same amount of men professing to be Christian watch pornography as non-Christian men. What about sex outside of marriage? Statistics would indicate that there are many professing believers having sex outside of marriage. And we are, this is professing believers. We are to be the church. There's to be this distinction, amen? What about the priorities of parents? It seems as as if a lot of our goals in light of parenting have been contaminated by the world. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to want our children to be educated. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for our children to engage in sports and extracurricular activities. But if we get to the bottom of the why we want them to do that, and maybe if we can compare the time spent in some of those activities in light of the time spent in discipling our children, I don't think it's a stark uh, comment to say that the world has contaminated our parenting goals. Look at what John writes in chapter 2 of his epistle, starting in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is, he's calling his audience here in this text, don't love the world, come out of the world. And we know what he's not saying. He's not saying don't love the people of the world, because God loves the people of the world, and he sent his son, Jesus, to die for them. So he's not saying don't love the people, but he's saying don't love the evil system that Satan is is controlling that is idolatrous, that is immoral, that is anti-God, that system, that world, don't love it. He's saying don't be devoted to the world's treasures, the world's philosophies, and the world's priorities. Don't engage in this evil system that promotes the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And what's important and why I took you to this text first is because the same John that's writing here saw a vision in Revelations. Revelation. I knew that I was going to do that. (laughs) He saw a vision. He saw a vision of the world and its desires passing away. And so that text really sets us up for what we're going to see in Revelation. John wrote this vision for the church. He wanted the church and the immediate audience in that day to to know, but he also wanted the church throughout history to be reminded that the world and its ways are deceptive, dangerous, and ultimately damning. And that's the big idea this morning. I want you to see, I want you to be reminded that the world and its ways are deceptive. 
They're dangerous and they're ultimately damning. And the invitation of God this morning for us all is simply this. Come out of the world. Come out. Come out of the world. That was the invitation for the original audience. And I believe that's God's invitation for us this morning. If you're taking notes, just know that God is calling his people to come out of the world. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is a huge body of text, and we won't be able to touch every single verse, but I want to kind of walk through the passage so we can know what's going on and kind of survey the passage. And the best way, I think, to survey this passage is to show you five key movements of the text. There's five key movements of the text that will really help us to understand what John saw and what he has written here for us. So the first movement of the text is this. Babylon is exposed. Babylon is exposed. And this is in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Look there with me. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many, many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and on earth's and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Some, some strong imagery here, right? What, what is going on here in this text? Well, we know that the prostitute is a symbol for Babylon. It tells us here, it also tells us in verse 18, this is a symbol of Babylon and its worldly ways. Some believe that this city, Babylon, would actually be a literal city resurrected at the end of the age. And without wrestling or debating that, I think what's clear in Scripture is that all throughout the Bible, Babylon has represented this evil satanic-led system that is anti-God, immoral, and idolatrous. And the point here is, is one thing that we must be clear on is that this city will be judged. The judgment has already come up in chapter 14. And look at chapter 16, verse 19. It says, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities, cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So this city, this, this system will be judged. And, and in chapter 17, we have it exposed. 
And in chapter 18, we have a vivid picture of its destruction, God actually destroying the city. But here again, we have Babylon exposed, exposed for its worldly desires, its worldly ways, its worldly wealth, its worldly pleasures, and the fact that this this system, this evil system is at war with God. And this is some strong imagery here. We have an enticing prostitute sitting on a beast. The idea, the symbolism, I think what John wants us to understand, bottom line, is that this woman represents worldly seduction, worldly attraction. And not only then, but throughout history, these worldly ways represented here has tempted the people of God and try to pull God's people away from him. We see a pull towards infidelity. You see that with her immoralities, the luxuries of of the system in the city, calling one, come, indulge in me, come, indulge in the luxuries of this system. We We see a pull towards immorality. That is very clear here. It's a temptation, it's an allurement towards immorality. We also see a pull towards idolatry. So it's this, this gradual process of come into the world, enjoy its, its, uh, its lust, its pleasures, and abandon your God and worship these things. So we see the progression of the world and its system. We're given a clear picture here of the nature of the world. In verses 7 through 18, we get an interpretation. That's a second movement. We get an interpretation of Babylon and the beast. Just look at verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast." with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And if you continue on, there's an explanation of what we have just seen in verses 1 through 6. He's going to break it down, right? We don't have time to go through all of that, but we have a woman sitting on a beast. And this beast represents uh, political powers and authorities. And these political powers and authorities even raise up to persecute the church of God. We've seen that the, the woman was drunk with the blood of the, in the, martyr, the, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so this is political power, authority, and even persecution. It's very well that this beast could be the Antichrist. Say, so how do you know that? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 describes the beast that you saw was, and it is not, and is about to rise up. It's an impersonation of the true Christ, who is, or who was, who is, and who is to come. The beast is the ruler of the evil system. The seven heads and the, and the ten horns, they represent kings, the text tells us. And again, the point is, we can kind of get lost in the details, right? The point is, we have this woman sitting on this beast, and so we not only have seduction, but she is also connected to political power and authority. We have Satan's evil system of seduction and dangerous power. You see that? 
And this whole system has rebelled against God. Verse 16 is very interesting. You see, look down at verse 16. It seems like the system turns on itself where it says, And then the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. So the system kind of turns in on itself, destroys, begins to destroy itself, but ultimately it will be destroyed by God. And chapter 18 is a picture of that destruction. Look over at chapter 18. This is the the, the third movement of the text. We have Babylon's judgment is announced, and that's in chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. I'll just read verses 1 and 2, the beginning of part of verse 2. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So first we have the system exposed for what it is. Now we're looking at the system being destroyed. The following verses gives reasons for the destruction In verse 2, she's destroyed because she has a demonic nature. There's demons functioning in her. She's destroyed in verse 3 for her idolatries. She's destroyed in verse 4 and 5 because of her sinfulness. Look at verse 5. For her sins are heaped as high as what? The heavens. She's destroyed because of her sin. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 18 shows us she's destroyed because of her pride. And in verses 9 to 19, which is the fourth movement of this passage, we have Babylon fall. Babylon's fall is lamented. Those who played in her, those who indulged in this system are now lamenting because Babylon has fallen. Look at verse 9 and 10 in the king of chapter 18. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off and in fear of torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, Your judgment has come. Swift, complete judgment from God on this evil system. She's not only lamented from the kings, we're told, she's also lamented from those who operated in business within her. That's verses 11 through 17 of this chapter. Those who are engaging in business lament over her. She is also grieved by the shipmasters. That's verses 17 to 19. The last movement, kind of walking through this text, is Babylon's fall is celebrated. Babylon's fall is celebrated. Look at verse 20. What does it say? You're looking at it? The text say, rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you 
against her. Her fall is celebrated by the saints. There's no more record of her, verse 21. There's no more rejoicing in her. The music has stopped. Verse 22, she would not be rebuilt. She would not be reflected. She would not recover. There's no redemption for this evil system. It is judged. Now, just want to take a step back, you know. We, we look through the text. What does all of this mean for us, right? The system is exposed. The system is judged. I think we have to just settle and, and embrace this one important truth. The world and all of its pleasures will be destroyed completely and suddenly. Remember in verse, in verse 10 and verse 17, it says, in one hour, she was laid waste. So, so come out of the world is the, is the command I believe God has given us today. Why? Because the world will perish. See this, learn this, realize this. The world is full of deception and attractions that will one day be destroyed. And God desires something greater for us. So don't be deceived. If we're honest, if we just take some time and really begin to just apply this text to our hearts and our lives, there are attractions knocking at our door every day, aren't there? Or, or am I the only one? The world and its attractions are, are seeking to lure us, seeking to bring us in. And so don't be deceived when sensual pleasures come knocking at your door. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived when material pleasures begin to say, you, all you need is more money. Then you'll be safe. All you need is more. All you need to do is work a little harder. It's okay that you neglect your family for hours at work. It's okay. You're going you're gonna to get ahead at one point. It's a deception. It's a lie. Don't believe the lie. The world tells us that if we just engage in its, its system, that then we'll be happy. If I just leave my spouse, then everything will be good. I'll find the perfect one. Come on, somebody. The world is lying to us. And many, many have believed the lie. And so that's the application this, this morning. Don't believe the lie. Look at what she thought in, in chapter 18, verse 7. She said, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. She had this false security. In one hour, God destroyed her. You see that? The world is temporary and fading away. The lust of power is one, one trap of the, of the world system. The lust of power. Climb the corporate ladder. You can do that. God says, beware of the lust for power and be aware of the subtle rules of pride. Notice in, in chapter 18, verse 7 again, that she did what to herself? She glorified herself, full of pride. She's not just a prostitute. She's a great prostitute. See the pride there? Babylon is not just a city, it's a great city. 
Pride is dripping all through the imagery of this, this system of Satan. And so we too are often tempted by the world to walk in pride. God says, come out. Come out of the world. So how do we address our worldly desires and the temptations to participate in the world? What, how do we respond? Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Kind of skipped over it intentionally. I mentioned verse 4 and 5, but I didn't hit verse 4 for this very purpose. What does verse 4 say? In the midst of her destruction, there's a message to God's people. What is it? Come out. Come out of her. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. My people, least you take part in her sins. Least you share in her plagues. Come out. That's the exhortation for us this morning. Come out. Come out of her. And I want you to think right now. Don't, don't think about your neighbor. Don't focus on your spouse right now. Just you and the holy word of God. God's word is telling you to come out. What specifically do you need to come out of? What specific trap that the world has offered you that you need to come out of this morning? What is God calling you out of? God is saying come out. Specifically of what for you? He says come out. When I first told my wife that my desire to plant a church might be coming into a soon fruition, I wish that I could say she was super excited about it. <laughs> she wasn't. And while she loves people and she loves to evangelize and share the gospel, when she heard me say, hey, we might be planting a church in Cleveland sometime soon, what she heard is, I'm leaving this house that God has provided. I'm taking my children to a community where there's, without doubt, violence and shootings and all type of things. She was not excited about moving. And God began to deal with her heart. God began to wrestle with her heart. And I got a front row seat. I was... <laughs> I mean, I want to plant a church. It's not because I want to see my wife go through sanctification and suffering. I want to plant a church. <laughs> As she began to open her heart to the Lord, the Lord really ministered to her from the first passage we read this morning in 1 John chapter 2. And she wrote down some observations that really God used to kind of free her because she was challenged with this question of, am I loving the world? Am I loving comfort? What's my resistance? Why am I not readily ready to go and plant this church? And here are some of the observations she made from 1 John chapter 2 that I thought just fit perfect in this message. She said, when I am pursuing comfort and safety in this world instead of God's purpose and plan, I am loving the world. She said, when I am pursuing my children's success according to the world's standard and not God's, I am loving the world. Now hear me, mothers. The fact that, that you want your children to be safe is a noble desire. But the, the Bible says, seek first what? The kingdom of God and everything else he'll take care of. And so she had to wrestle with that. 
She went on to say, when I am seeking acknowledgement and recognition and acceptance from people instead of resting in who I am in Christ, I'm loving the world. When I'm seeking to store temporary treasures in this world, I'm loving it. I mean, this is good stuff, isn't it? She's on fire. She's preaching. She says, when I pursue beauty as if that's where my value is found, I'm loving the world. When my mind is set on earthly things, I am loving the world. When I go after my flesh cravings and desires, I am loving the world. I want to begin to call the band up now. I'm going to get ready to close. But the first exhortation is come out of the world. There's a second one that I want you to note, although I said I'm ending. There's a second one that I want you to note I think is very important. The second one is embrace grace. First exhortation, come out of the world. And that's kind of like the putting off, right? We're going to put off sin. But then what do we want to put on? What do we want to do positively? Answer, embrace grace. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Please look there. This is an important passage. I want you to see that this is the word of God, God speaking to us through his holy inspired word. He says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? Renounce. There it is. Grace enables us to renounce the world. The worldly passions to live, uh, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and impurity for himself. And to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. This text teaches us that if we embrace grace, we will be empowered to renounce the world. There's only one more question to answer. What does grace mean in this text? Is grace just an attribute of God here? Many scholars, including John MacArthur, believes that grace in this passage, look at it again, the grace that has appeared is Jesus himself. The grace that has appeared bringing salvation to all people is Jesus. So it is Jesus in our relationship to him that enables us to deny the world. Jesus teaches us in our relationship to him, cultivates a power to deny ourselves, to deny the world, and to follow God. And so embracing grace is really embracing Jesus. We know that love for the world and love for God cannot coexist. One will push out the other. Our, our call is come out of the world, embrace Jesus who paid it all for us, who gave his life, his perfect, precious life on the cross to save us. Embrace him and he will empower you to renounce the world. Pray. Father God, we love you. 
because we are so loved by you. And we hear your call this morning to come out of the world and embrace Jesus who paid it all. Help us, Lord. Help us. The world is deceiving and yet it is attractive. Help us to say no to the world and yes to our Lord and Savior as we follow him. We love you and we are so loved by you. We, we bask in that. We rest in that. In Jesus' name.